0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September 27th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. State governments want more housing, particularly in California. Local governments, not so much. Tim Lee runs Full Stack Economics. We talked about the coming shifts in housing policy at the state level and the new changes in California and why the politics of housing will mean big fights for decades to come. It seems like a pretty straightforward point. uh, The idea that Building luxury units helps people who are of lower income. And yet, online, when I hear the phrase affordable housing, it is never used to refer to market rate housing and absurdly never used to refer to uh, so called luxury housing. So, how walk us through the uh, intuition on why building luxury apartments actually helps lower income renters.
1: Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think some people have this intuition that there's the luxury market and there's the affordable market. And so if you build luxury apartment that helps luxury people, I guess, rich people. But, you know, if you're not in that market, you're not helped. Um, but but if you like think it through like the the, um, you know, the rich person who moves into the new luxury apartment. They previously, in most cases, lived somewhere else, um, probably in the same metro area. And often, you know, people, as they're kind of moving up in life, um, they're moving maybe to a nicer apartment or a apartment in a better location. And so the apartment they leave um, was, you know, becomes open that somebody else can move into that apartment. Um, And this is a chain that happens out, you know, over the course of a few months. Um, That second apartment, uh, the person who moves into that vacates a third apartment. Um, And so you can say that in the abstract. um, But what's really interesting is a couple of researchers in a couple of different areas um, have actually gotten the records and looked at exactly. um, Okay, we start with this building that has 100 units and track back. What are all the vacancies that were created by people moving into those units and then people into the moving into the units that they did? And they went out um, six steps. In that chain, and um, got statistics about you know what kind of apartments are are vacated, um, and a significant number of those apartments are in lower tiers of the market um, and in neighborhoods that have lower incomes, where you'd expect somebody who's not a wealthy person in a luxury market uh, would be able to have access.
0: Yeah, you. I've heard it, I've heard it said that at the construction of a new home results in four moves the people moving into the home and the people moving into that home and the people moving into that home. So uh, what does the, What does this tell us or what do we learn about the people who are uh, moving into these recently fallow
1: apartments? Um, so the the research um, didn't have d- data on the exact income level of those people. Um, but, but one of the things that housing experts have talked about, about a long time is the concept of filtering, that one of the ways that affordable housing gets created is that Apartments that were made, you know, 20, 40, 60 years ago that are not, um, you know, no longer high-end luxury apartments. They just just become kind of normal apartments or maybe, um, you know, slightly done, run down kind of entry-level apartments. Um, and while for any given, ap- any given apartment, it takes decades for that to happen, um, these moving chains mean that um, spaces in those apartments get opened up every time a new apartment building um, opens up. Um, And so you can um, it it can take a matter of months for a new unit in a luxury building um, to kind of turn into a new unit in a building that can be affordable to a a much larger um, cross section of people.
0: How do you evaluate the notion of so-called NIMBYs, people who don't want particular kinds of developments in uh, their neighborhoods, often low-income developments or small apartments or five-on-ones, a a term I only recently came to understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you evaluate their desire to have this kind of housing not near them, but definitely they want it built?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. What I think this really does is it spreads out the places where affordable housing is built. Because when you have official, subsidized, regulated affordable housing, um, that is going to be a political fight about, you know, where is this housing going to be located and who's allowed to live there, et etc. Um, whereas with this um, housing chain and this filtering process, um, it's just houses housing all over the city just becomes a little bit cheaper every time there's a new unit. Um And there's no kind of central planner like saying, OK, this neighborhood over here is going to have affordable housing. Um, it's just uh, housing in many different parts of the city um, opens up as people in more affluent areas move into new housing um, somewhere else.
0: What of the changes in California? I spoke recently with uh, Michael Tanner at Cato. He directs our uh, project on homelessness, uh, poverty and inequality and those those issues uh, in California. and these two pieces of legislation that move forward to hear Mike Tanner tell it, but the Cato Institute on its own, on their own, will not have that much of an impact on the creation of new housing.
1: Uh, yeah, I think that's correct. Um, but I think the the, the big issue that um, people face in California is that the state government really wants more housing, but local go- governments um for various reasons, don't want more housing. Um, And so any one law that the state government passed, the local governments will find ways to gum up the works and prevent housing. Um, But what you've seen is every single year for about the last five years, California has passed several new bills limiting the discretion of um, local governments, kind of deregulating over the objections of local governments. And the um, net effect of those um, deregulations, I think, are going to be pretty significant.
0: So what? Well, what do you think would be steps one and two of that? The changes brought by those laws, which, to be clear, people have called them. Hey, let's abolish single-family zoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the that's the way it's been characterized.
1: Yes. No, absolutely. So that, so that is, I, that's the, the biggest change from this most recent legislation. And I think that will be significant. Um, I think particularly what you'll see in, um, Silicon Valley, I think is where this will matter the most because you have big companies like Google and Apple that are creating tens of thousands of jobs. And most of Silicon Valley, the residential parts are zoned for single family homes. And so if more people want to live there, there's just no space to build more homes. Um, and so what this legislation does is it allows somebody with a single family home to, um, split their lot into and build two duplexes on what used to be a single lot. And so you can turn one unit of housing to four. Um, and so, and these houses are very valuable. A house in in um, like Cupercino where Apple's located can go for two to $3 million. And you can imagine if you turn one $2 million house into four, Houses that, you know, maybe might go for two million or a million and a half. Um, there's a big profit opportunity. So I think you'll see, uh, significant building kind of at the high end. Um, I think it'll be less significant in, um, urban areas, both because in many places it's already pretty high density. So there won't be as many places to redevelop, but also because this is still a relatively expensive process. If you're tearing down one house to build two houses, you're still losing the value of that one house. And, you know, you're not like, Profiting that much. Um, and so I think in other parts of the state, um, they're really going to need to legalize um, larger forms of housing and uh, streamline other aspects of the development process to really um, allow uh, across the board of development. So the, the other big thing that the California legislature did is it gave the um cities the option to to opt out of the California Environmental Quality Act, which is a um kind of a paperwork burden that allows um Opponents of housing to uh, slow down the process by requiring these environmental reports that often don't add much value. Um, and so that will allow cities that do want to uh, streamline the creation of housing to um, to, to take away red tape. And so these are that, that again is not going to revolutionize the market, but um, they've been uh, passing laws like this every year for several years. Um, and the cumulative effect I think will will be to start making a dent in this housing shortage.
0: The California change in law was reasonably bipartisan, uh, but if you go to other states, a lot of the opposition, the broad opposition, uh, I think quoted most famously by Donald Trump, claiming that do- that Joe Biden wanted to destroy the suburbs. If you go to other states, there is bipartisan, broad bipartisan opposition to making almost any change to housing policy, uh, specifically with respect to zoning. But in these densely populated areas in California and New York and elsewhere, those problems arguably are coming to other states down the road because the policies are not nearly as bad necessarily as as California's policies have been, but the problems are the same.
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I think that's right. Um, so I think two things are happening. One is just that um, I think California and um, other cities like Boston um, just have, because they are... Um, their incomes and populations are the demand for living there is growing because they have so many high paying jobs. Um, there's just a lot of pressure for more um, construction. And so then that kind of uh, hits up against the limits more quickly. Um, but you're right that uh, many metro areas are now starting to see um housing prices go up. Um, but I think this is actually an opportunity where the right could take play a constructive role. There are some people like Donald Trump, um, or Tucker Carlson who uh, characterize this as like an ass- assault on conservatives in the suburbs. Um, but the, I think the, the fundamental position here is a pretty free market position that people should be allowed to do what they want with their own property. Um, and it's actually the case if you look like a state like Texas, I mean, Houston is uh, famous for having uh, relatively few restrictions on housing construction. Um, and so I think that, uh, if conservatives look at this the right way as, fun- as fundamentally letting people do what they want with their own property um, and letting a free market work, um, there's no reason that um, conservatives, I think, should be hostile to the idea um, that we should allow people to build more housing if there's a market demand for it.
0: Yeah. Cato's Mike Tanner, as I mentioned earlier, uh, who runs our project on uh, poverty and inequality in California. He said people are viewing homeownership more now as an investment than probably ever before.
1: Yeah. And I think that's um I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think the fact that it's um, so lucrative is a, a reflection of the dysfunctional nature of housing markets. Um, I mean, historically, house housing did not tend to appreciate over time. Um, for most of the 20th century, the cost of a home was roughly in line with what it cost to build a new home. And if you had a surge in demand, the price would go up for a few years until more housing would built and then go back down. Um, The recent trend we've seen where prices just go up and up and up in um, larger cities, I think hopefully is an aberration where once we have enough of these reforms like we see in California, um, housing demand will start to respond to the higher prices and we'll start to see housing prices come back down again.
0: Your colleague at Full Stack Economics, Alan Cole, your partner in crime there has suggested that if Republicans, conservatives broadly are able to change their thinking about this, and create some sort of groundswell of support among Republicans and self-styled conservatives, that this is an own-the-libs moment. Can you detail what, what he meant by that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you have a state like Texas with a generally republican leaning state government, um, but a liberal city like Austin that has some of the same housing affordability problems you see in other states. And so one... Reform idea that would both be a good idea on policy and also uh, might be good politically would be for the state of government to preempt local laws that restrict housing construction, um, allow for more of a free market in housing, which I think would be good for people in Austin, although you know, people in Austin may or may not like it.
0: And so this would be a way for uh, conservatives to tell lefties, we're going to give you affordable housing, whether you like it or not.
1: Yes, and and do it in a, in a, a more conservative way. I mean, you definitely see um, two strands of thinking about how to get affordable housing. One is that the government should tax people and spend a lot of money subsidizing housing as kind of a demand side, you know, approach. Um, the other approach is to simply make it cheaper to deregulate and make it cheaper to construct housing, in which case you don't uh, necessarily need taxpayer uh, subsidies. And so if you have a state like Texas where Republicans are in charge, um, it makes sense for them to approach that in the more free market way of deregulation, deregulating the housing market.
0: Tim Lee runs Full Stack Economics. We spoke last week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.